Strange Studies of Strange Stories. In a wood older than record, a foster brother of the hills, stood the village of Alathurian, and there was peace between the people of that village and all the folk who walked in the dark ways of the wood, whether they were human, or of the tribes of the beasts, or of the race of the fairies and the elves and the little sacred spirits of trees and streams. Moreover, the village people had peace among themselves and between them and their lord, Lorendiac. In front of the village was a wide and grassy space, and beyond this was the great wood again. But at the back, the trees came right up to the houses, which, with their great beams and wooden framework and thatched roofs, green with moss, seemed almost to be a part of the forest. Now, in the time I tell of, there was trouble in Alathurian. For of an evening, fell dreams were wont to come slipping through the tree trunks and into the peaceful village, and they assumed dominion of men's minds, and led them in watches of the night through the cindery plains of hell. Then the magician of that village made spells against those fell dreams, yet still the dreams came flitting through the trees as soon as the dark had fallen, and led men's minds by night into terrible places, and caused them to praise Satan openly with their lips. Is that a level five spell? Is this in the player's handbook? Well, this story is from 1908, which predates Dungeons and Dragons by quite a few decades. Oh, that game right. came out in the 1970s. Although I, I also thought the story was from the 70s because it says in that opening paragraph, the village people had peace among themselves. <laughs> but I think in this case, it just means people of the village, not the band. Oh, yeah. Which is I was gonna, that wouldn't surprise me either because the village people are very peaceful. That opening paragraph was from Lord Dunsany's The Fortress Unvanquishable Save for Sacknoth, a title with a lot of weird words, just like this tale. Thank goodness we have a professional with us to handle all of it. That is our reader, Greg Johnson, <laughs> back in the house, and he's rocking our socks off. <laughs> Greg isn't just a talented voice artist. Oh, no. He is an amazing maker of merchandise. Anybody that can hear the sound of my voice right now mm. needs to immediately go to his Etsy store and indulge. It's off the hook. <laughs> I know you're being ironically advertising, but you really legit sound like the voiceover from some 1990s cable <laughs> commercial. Keep it going. I'm going to play some music under this. Keep it going. Okay. Greg has got food farm flyers, custom jobs that he does. He's got t-shirts of Woody Brown, two kinds. He's got lunch dolphin books. He's got Mincemane Christmas jumpers, shenanigan t-shirts. It's a trove of goodness where you can actually buy joy and happiness. You can just buy it. Greg Johnson, all that a bag of chips. <laughs> By the way, the music we heard during that opening reading, the very atmospheric music in the beginning, we're also hearing some of that now and we'll hear it throughout the episode. This music has been provided for us today by an outfit called Rags of Light. Uh, of is spelled O-V, Rags of Light. It's a music project from an old friend of ours, Matt Gordon. Hey, Matt. We've known Matt forever. forever. I don't mean to pull the curtain back on Rags of Light, especially since I don't know what, what Matt's doing back there. But the music <laughs> is excellent. Good ambient, atmospheric tracks for reading, writing, gaming. Maybe you just want to make a spell against some fell dreams. This oh, is the boy. soundtrack for that. I'll link yeah. out to his Bandcamp page. There's a lot there. It's the holidays. Pick it up. Yeah. Speaking of the holidays, we're in them now. This is our free show for December. Typically, the tradition is to read ghost stories for the holidays, but this year, 
we're going with the fantasy genre. And since we were in a 1908 kind of mood after reading the fundamental sci-fi story, The Machine Stops, we thought mm -hmm. we'd do something else from the period, a Lord Dunsany story. We covered Dunsany back on HP Podcraft, mm -hmm. but this is the first time we've had him on the new show. Lovecraft was a very enthusiastic fan and sometimes imitator of Dunsany. And I think mm -hmm. that Lovecraft fandom is partly responsible for bringing more of his work back into print. It used to be pretty hard to find his stuff. Now, this story that we're covering today is maybe the first ever sword and sorcery story, which is some claim, I gotta yeah. say. The tale was first published in The Sword of Wellerin and Other Stories in 1908. And I guess the real question is, what makes something sword and sorcery? And I don't actually know who acknowledges this as the first sword and sorcery story. Mm -hmm. I first read about it on Blackgate.com. I'll link out to this article, which was written by Matthew David Surridge, and it says, Lord Dunsany's short story, The Fortress Unvanquishable Save for Sacknoth, has been called the first sword and sorcery story ever written. That attribution has been contested elsewhere, though. Mm -hmm. And I, when I clicked through on that link, it was a dead link. It didn't go anywhere. And then I thought, well, maybe I should check out this claim. Who made it? Blah, blah, blah. And then I decided not to because genres a little like music genres. If you need to sort things in a bookstore yeah. or a library, fine. But ultimately, who cares? The article from Surridge, to answer your question, continues along those lines. I don't particularly intend to grapple with the question. It seems to me that genres are defined by conventions, which is to say by expectations held by a reader. Whether a story fits a genre, therefore, depends on whether the conventions it uses are the ones that the individual reader expects. And while many stories use conventions in such standard ways that there's broad agreement about what sort of tale they are, some, like Sacknoth, will vary in definition from person to person. Yeah. Let's just jump into the synopsis. As we heard at the top, we have a village called Alathurian, and it's ruled by a guy, Lorendiac. The people of the village are plagued by horrible dreams of hell, and it's <laughs> messing everybody up because, you know, they don't want to sleep. Yeah, it's a Nightmare on Elm Street scenario where they're staying up, eating coffee grounds, listening to rock music. <laughs> I, I love the imagery of the nightmare slipping through the tree trunks into the village, which we heard in the opening. Because I am bringing in some fantasy conventions with me, I was surprised that despite the fairies and the elves and the sacred spirits that were mentioned right away, there's also this talk of hell and that the nightmares are making people pray Satan. Yeah. So Christianity is a thing or some version of it in this otherwise pagan world. Yeah, it's a little odd. It didn't feel quite right to me, but, you know, I'm rolling with it. Yeah. Now, the town wizard, who they call the magician, is trying to stop these nightmares. So he goes to the edge of the forest. He casts a spell to stop them but it doesn't work. And this spell is super kick-ass. It's a compulsive, terrible thing. A verse of 40 lines in many languages, both living and dead. And it had in it the word wherewith the people of the plains are wont to curse their camels, and the shout wherewith the whalers of the north lure the whales shoreward to be killed, and a word that causes elephants to trumpet. And every one of the 40 lines closed with a rhyme for wasp. <laughs> My God! <laughs> what rhymes with wasp? That's a uh, tough one. Wasp? Exactly. This, uh, that's, yeah, this spell is so powerful. But since it doesn't work, the magician knows there's only one entity that can be the cause of this spell not working. He calls everybody in town together and he says, these evil dreams are coming from Gaznak. <laughs> Gaznak is this thing that comes with the comet every 230 years uh, and makes himself an invincible fortress and he sends out dreams to feed on the minds of men. And the only way he can be vanquished is with the sword Sacknoth. Oh, dude, these names, man. I like Gaznak a lot as a name. It describes him as Gaznak, the greatest magician among the spaces of the stars. It's pretty Lovecrafty sounding. Yeah. 
and he rides the comet in. So I think he's humanoid. Yeah, we find out. He's an outer space wizard. Mm-hmm. So I, you know, I kind of liked him right away because of that. He's <laughs> he's way more, he's sort of like a way more fun Sauron. I think he's got oh, purple yeah. armor. I can see it kind of glowing, a cool saddle mm-hmm. for the comet. But he's feeding on the dreams of men. Space wizard's got a space wizard. <laughs> The son of the ruler, Lord Lorendiac, whose name is Leothric, mm-hmm. says, what is up with this sword? And the magician says, well, it doesn't exist yet. It's part of the hide of Theragavarug, which is protecting its spine. Oh, that makes sense. <laughs> the magician explains that Theragavarug is a dragon crocodile in the northern marshes, and it is a horrible beast. I got pretty excited about this creature because it reminded me of The Day of the Dragon by Guy Endor. <laughs> Episode 354 of HP Podcast, we covered it. That was the one where, or maybe it was alligators. Was it crocodiles or alligators? Sure. They, they had a, a heart defect that was genetic that when he repaired it, allowed them to grow up into the dragons that they were always <laughs> supposed to be, which the scientists could then ride around and cause havoc with. <laughs> Wonderful story. Although this particular dragon croc, Theragavarug, is unique. Its back is steel. Its belly is iron. Its spine is vibranium. Well, <laughs> unearthly steel. And that is Sacknoth, his spine. Yes. If you can beat the beast, and the only way to get it off his body is to melt all the other stuff away in a giant furnace. And to sharpen Sacknoth, one needs to take Theragavarug's steel eye and use it as a sharpening stone. But the other eye must be attached to the hilt and it will watch for thee. <laughs> what? <laughs> the sword is this creature's spine, and then the eyes come into play too when you fashion the, the weapon. I love this stuff. I don't know why. This is where the genre nuances come into play, though. I think sword and sorcery is a sort of adultification of myth and fairy tales. Mm. And in myth and fairy tales, those are stories in which the gods, fate, fairies, external elements are really in control. Mm-hmm. Myths and fairy tales are meant to perhaps teach a lesson or they might just be there to scare or thrill the listener mm-hmm. or have a neat twist at the end. But characters in these stories are often not in control of their own fate. Or if they are in control of their own fate, they're given external advantages that allow them to win. Sword and Sorcery puts the characters in charge of their own fate. And I think that's the difference. The name imparts that. In the mm-hmm. world of the fairy tale, you can fight back with your sword or you can try and master the magic that drives the world. So Lord of the Rings, Game of Thrones, these things, people are trying to use the tools available to them to prevail against those external influences. But in the traditional fairy tale or myth, it really isn't about the characters at all. I think in that respect, this story is a little closer to a European fairy tale or a myth. This character, Leothric, is given absolutely everything he needs. Gaznak is here giving people nightmares. You need Sacknoth to beat Gaznak. It's in that dragon crocodile. Go get it. Yep. The only way to kill Theragavarug is to starve it to death. God, that is horrible. He's not vulnerable, it says, yet in one spot he may take hurt for his nose is only of lead. Everything else is stronger metal. (laughs) If his nose be smitten constantly with a stick, he will always recoil from the pain. So the magician tells him that if you hit him in the nose with a stick, it'll keep him away from his food. But you have to do this for three days. And at the end of three days, at sunset, it will die. What's it eat? Leothric asks. Men the magician says. So you are going to be saving some lives as well. Yeah. That kind of takes the sting out of starving this metal crocodragon creature. So the next day, Leothric gets himself a nice hazel switch (laughs) to do some, you know, dragon crocodile smacking, and he goes up north. (laughs) When he arrives, it's late morning, and the beast is there ready for his first meal. Now, this is so disturbing. The people in in the nearby village, they just come out to meet it because it will find the person that it wants to eat and there is nothing they could do to stop it. So instead of it wrecking stuff and getting people all worked up, they just all go out there to meet the thing, and then it picks the person that it wants, 
and then eats them and then buggers off. It's the first time human sacrifice has ever made sense to me, though. Yeah, but the thing is, too, what they say is, like, it decides who it wants. So, like, even if they threw someone to it, they go, no, I don't want that one. I want that one. And they can't stop it. It'll do whatever it wants, and it'll get the thing, and then... So they all just have to go out there and line up. Yep. You know, that is actually really intense because have you ever, there's a specific feeling and we should have a word for it of when the teacher's going to call somebody in class and you don't want them to call on you. So you have this moment of panic where you're trying to make yourself small, but don't make Mm -hmm. it too obvious because then they'll know you're hiding and they'll call Mm -hmm. on you. That's just going to be happening with Thera Gavarug in this whole village. (laughs) But he's standing there looking down at the ground, hoping not to be chosen. Well, our hero is able to find the creature by first following his tracks. He traveled through this forest and then emerges Mm -hmm. into this wasteland of a swamp so the tracks are in the mud and then he hears the bronze heart of Theragavarug before him booming like a bell. The sound of the bell heart is mentioned throughout the text. It's a really neat sensory element that Dunsany adds. Leothric comes right up to it and he just starts wailing on its nose. <laughs> he smote him on the nose and the blow of the stick made a dint in the soft lead and Theragavarug swung clumsily away uttering one fearful cry like the sound of a great church bell that had become possessed of a soul that fluttered upward from the tombs at night. An evil soul giving the bell a voice. Now it tries to get him, but Leothric just notches and he keeps smacking it on the nose. He keeps this up, driving the monster back and away from the village and away from its food. Here's where Leothric has to show some individual talent, I do suppose. You know, you have to stay up for three days straight and smack this metal crocodile every time it tries to eat a guy. That would actually, that'd make a great video game. (laughs) Three days. You have to stay up for three days to win. And just randomly whack a crocodile every time it lunges. The monster gets tired of trying to attack, so gives up. But some villagers come and they start to party near it. <laughs> which gets the monster all riled up again. Yeah. But then the nose beating continues. Oh, they're rubbing it in this crocodile face. <laughs> well, I, I can see they'd be pretty angry with this guy. Yeah, it's true. So as night comes, the beast continues to attack Leothric. And Leothric just keeps jumping and smacking. <laughs> and it goes on for three days with the beast getting weaker and weaker. Once Thera Gavarug nearly seized a frog, but Leothric snatched it away just in time. So You highlighted that. Why? I like the idea that he was going to give up on the humans, and then he, you know, I'll just eat a frog. Yeah. And then that would keep him alive. But no, no, he's so good that he saw him trying to sneak that frog. He's like, no, <laughs> smack on your face. It surprised me because they said he eats men. I thought he had a a diet that was restricted to only that, but he can eat other animals. It impressed me about Leothric that he's he's kind of ward him off every animal. If all yeah. the villagers are in the village, that's just one direction. You got to keep the croc from going. Yeah. But if he could just roll around and eat a eat a mouse or a frog, you really got to be on your game. Yeah, totally. Well, yeah. he is because on the third day, well, Leothric, he's getting pretty tired as well. So the beast makes a mad rush for the village, but Leothric still has his wits and he beats that nose like nobody's business. <laughs> Finally, the beast dies. Leothric just lays down next to it and goes to sleep because he's freaking exhausted. Yeah. The villagers pick up his body like a little baby and they put him to bed and then they party. It says they danced outside in silence so that they didn't wake him up, which was an image I put the story down for a second and just thought about. They're out there like, yeah, keep it down. Keep it down. I know we're all really happy. Just. But, like, they're dancing hard. (laughs) (laughs) Quietly. So the next day, the body of their Gavarug is taken away to Alithurian to be smelted. Everything but sackcloth is melted away. The eyes, previously plucked out, are used to sharpen the blade, and then the other eye is placed into its hilt. You know, that name, Theragavarug, as I was thinking about it, remember way back we covered uh, the doom that came to Sarnath, mm-hmm. and there was a strange god known as Bakrug, the great water lizard. I think we made some oh. hay about that at the time. But oh, Bakrug yeah. seems to be descended from this Theragavarug, perhaps. Uh-huh. It sounds very yeah. similar. 
It's weird that it's got an eye in the sword. It's kind of a Sword of Omens kind of deal. That's what I thought. From Thundercats. It also is supposed to give some advantages. So I guess after you starve this animal, its eye is like cool with helping you out. I don't know. That yeah. that was the only part of this so whole weird. story that I thought was a little off. <laughs> that was it. That's the only That's part. It. Yeah. When Le- Leothric wakes, the sword is ready for him to party. <laughs> he went westwards to find Gaznak. And he went through the dark forest till the dawn and all the morning until the afternoon. But in the afternoon, he came into the open and he saw in the midst of the land where no man goeth the fortress of Gaznak, mountainous before him, little more than a mile away. Now, the fortress is what's mentioned in the title. It's the mm-hmm. fortress that is unvanquishable. Save for Sacknot. So it really is the antagonist. Yeah. I just want to, we should all stop blaming Gaznak. It's not really Gaznak's <laughs> fault. I think Dunsany really kind of did these stories as a fun hobby. Yeah. Mr. Plunkett, he's quite wealthy and didn't really need to be doing this. And that's sort oh, sure. of what makes them unique, his attitude towards his own work. I had read that he did first drafts too. He didn't really rewrite these things. He loved the spontaneity of the rhythm and the music of these pieces. Mm-hmm. And so that's why sometimes things might not make sense. But he also couldn't help self-satirizing and taking a humorous look at the things he was laying out. And so it seems like he would lay out these fantasy stories and then kind of start making fun of them or making them really campy and extreme half the time because he just couldn't take them seriously for very long. There's no discovery to be made in the story. The title tells you how to kill the bad guy. Yeah. (laughs) So I think it's like, don't worry whether the hero will win or not. We know how this is going to turn out. Let's just kind of wander around this super cool castle. Yeah. So there's this marsh and desolate land leading up to the fortress and Leothric starts toward it. Yeah, and I thought this was neat. The eye of the hilt in his sword can see, and it mm-hmm. seems to know what the Theragavarug knew, and it gently guides Leothric to avoid dangerous places on the way to this castle. Now, if this was more of a sword and sorcery story, don't you think that Theragavarug would be trying to get revenge constantly by steering him toward the dangerous places? Yeah, or maybe there's some kind of respect, like, oh, you killed me? Oh, You're a badass. Right. And now, you know, I'm going to serve you because you're obviously my better. Well, there you go. See, I'm making sense of this stuff. Yeah, you're more in touch with that aristocratic point of view. (laughs) The fortress has got gargoyles on it. Sure, that I expect. But written in large letters of brass, it says, the fortress unvanquishable, save for Sacknoth. There's a plaque like this on the Fortress of Solitude, actually. It says, here lives (laughs) Superman, easily killed with kryptonite. (laughs) It's so ridiculous. There's giant text on the side of this fortress that tells you how to beat it. Yeah. Okay. (laughs) I mean, he must have found that amusing as well. It's funny. It's funny. When Leothric holds the sword, out it shines to reveal a field of blood. Lots of people slain here. Uh, He gets to a huge door. It's labeled too. It says, the port resident, the way of egress for war. So everything's labeled in this place. It's very, very handy. (laughs) Yeah. That's the way they leave the fortress to go to war with folks. Leothric just hacks through that mighty door with his sword because Sacknoth is the best sword ever. Lightsabers ain't got nothing on Sacknoth. And we get lots of this kind of stuff. Then Leothric smote upon the port resonant with Sacknoth, and the echo of Sacknoth went ringing through the halls, and all the dragons in the fortress barked. And when the baying of the remotest dragon had faintly joined in the tumult, a window opened far up above the clouds, below the twilight gables, and a woman screamed. And far away in hell, her father heard her and knew that her doom was come. I love it. I think we've been lukewarm on Dunsany before, but for, I just really enjoy this one. The language is really great, and it's just got a crazy rhythm to it. And It's crazy. Like, what's going on there? We don't get, who's this woman? 
What's her dad? What's going on with that? We don't get an explanation. That's just (laughs) some stuff to make you feel things and feel things I do. Now, after Leothric cuts the door, there is an elephant and it just runs off. Like inside, there's an elephant hanging out, whatever. In this great hall, he hears bells and they get louder until he can see a procession of men on camels riding two by two from the interior of the fortress. And they are armed with scimitars of Assyrian make. And the leader of these men says to Leothric, the Lord Gaznak has desired to see you die before him. Be pleased to come with us and we will discourse by the way of the manner in which the Lord Gaznak has desired to see you die. So Leothric says, that's cool. I'm here to slay Gaznak anyhow. So, you know, you'll save me some time by showing me where he is. And the leader laughs and goes, he's immortal. The only thing that could kill him is Sacknoth. And Leothric says, baby, this here is Sacknoth. And the dudes just run. <laughs> that was it. He just, I don't know, does he even show him the sword? Or does he just say he has it? And then they all just run away yeah. in different directions. So it doesn't really help him figure out where Gaznak is. The whole thing's kind of comedic. He just, uh, you know, they scatter in every direction. The elephant right away trumpeting and running in the beginning. It's all goofy. Yeah, it is funny. You know, obviously, if there's one thing these guys know, it's that Sacknoth is the one. It can destroy the whole fortress because it's printed on the front of the place. <laughs> So Leothric gets into a room full of ropes. He cuts them with Sacknoth, and then a giant spider comes out. Who are you to spoil the labor of years all done in the honor of Satan? (laughs) Boom, there's the giant spider element, you know, from Lord of the Rings. So many other fantasy stories. There's a giant spider episode of Gilligan's Island. That plot was born here, I guess. But this spider is working for Satan, which is pretty metal. It is. By the way, earlier when he said he was there to kill Gaznak, the camel guard laughed hideously disturbing the vampires that were asleep in the measureless vault of the roof. <laughs> so there's a bunch of lost boys up in this fortress, too. It's kind of Dunsany's Castlevania, this story. Uh, it is. Super cool. I like, too, that they're they're disturbed. So they're up there like, oh, yammering. And, and, you know, it's like, whoa, what's going on? Who's, th- who's down there? Yeah. Who's what, laughing go- down there? Who's laughing? I'm trying to sleep. <laughs> so the spider says, I'm going to hang you. And then he says, Check out my sword. It's Sacknoth. The spider backs off. Leothric cuts the ropes. <laughs> and he goes to a banquet chamber with queens and princes. And there are 200 footmen soldiers there just hanging out. And they ask Leothric who he is. And he tells them and that he's there to slay Gasnak. They pass the information down the line because it's like 200 dudes deep. Right. And the message gets back and it says, kill this fool. But he does something unexpected. This is crazy. He shows them Sacknoth. <laughs> and they all, of course, scream and run. You would think that they would ask as well for some certificate of authenticity or uh, some kind of, can any bozo that wanders in there with the sword just say, hey, this is Sacknoth and everybody runs away? Yeah, I guess the skill of one wielding Sacknoth really doesn't seem to matter. It's evident that this is Sacknoth. They're de- they don't need to know. I guess if you have it, then the only way to get it is by besting that beast, then you must have earned it. So if you've got it, then that means you're a badass. But how are they able to immediately identify that that's what it is? Yeah, that's true. Yeah. You could have, you know, wooden stick and say it's that. They wouldn't know better. <laughs> you kind of distracted me talking about the vampires being disturbed. So I'm just <laughs> thinking about them. You know, when it's noisy, say you're in a hotel room and it's noisy next to you and you go, do I say anything? Are they just yeah. having fun? Will this end at 11, maybe? I don't want to be the person that, right, like the vampires are going through all that. And this scene of them all playing the telephone game back and forth to relay information was pretty amusing as well. It almost felt like a Three Stooges short. Yeah, this stuff is funny. It seems it's intentionally supposed to be funny. It's not what you would expect with a 
sword and sorcery, like a Conan story, they're things we laugh about, but it's usually pretty serious. Oh, it's very serious, yeah. Yeah, Robert E. Howard would not, he'd be like, this whimsy is too off the hook for me. <laughs> That's what he would say. Now, Leothric, Leothric <laughs> hears some music, and it's the magic music that's being played to Gaznak as he sleeps. Mm -hmm. As he follows this music, he passes a room full of lots of weirdly beautiful women, all asking him about slaying Gaznak. And they say only Sagnoth could kill Gaznak. They also say that he should stay and protect them from the wolves. But Leothric can see that they're not really women, but the fevered dreams of Gaznak. Otherwise, this could have been Leothric's weakness. He's got mm -hmm. none thus far, but this could have been his Achilles heel, invitations to orgies. Yeah. It says, perhaps Leothric had been tempted to tarry had they been human women, for theirs was a strange beauty. But he perceived that instead of eyes, they had little flames that flickered in their sockets and knew them to be the fevered dreams of Gaznak. Yes, I have business with Gaznak and Sacknoth. And at the name of Sacknoth, those women screamed, and the flames in their eyes sank low and dwindled to sparks. They just hear it, and they freak out. I don't think I would have turned away a flame-eyed woman. He walks on and through another door. This leads into a giant room, and he can feel night air on him. And he stands on this narrow way between two abysses full of stars. They cut their way through the whole earth and reveal the under sky. That was really neat. Like the fortress is holding two halves of the world together and the stars are coming from this chasm. Through which vampires fly, praising Satan. I guess they're up now. <laughs> if they're awake, might as well get to work. <laughs> as he walks, the dragon Thok blocks the path and Leothric walks right up to him and the dragon rushes him. And he smote deep with Sacknoth and Thok tumbled into the abyss screaming and his limbs made a whirring in the darkness as he fell, and he fell till his scream sounded no louder than a whistle, and then could be heard no more. Once or twice, Leothric saw a star blink for an instant and reappear again, and this momentary eclipse of a few stars was all that remained in the world of the body of Thok. <laughs> That's really cool. Look! Thok's brother sees this and he just gets the hell out of there. Yeah. He's not gonna, whoa, he's whoa. not gonna get around with that. Yeah. Finally, Leothric gets to a great set of double doors. The great doors open and they reveal Wong Bongarok. <laughs> <laughs> I'm gonna say that again. Yeah. Wong Bongarok. Wong Bongarok. A dragon, and he's the last of Gaznak's guards. He blasts fire from his mouth at Leothric. More as a child than a dragon was Gaznak wont to treat Wong Bongarok, giving him often in his fingers tender pieces of man all smoking from his table. Behind him roared the armory of his tail as when sailors dragged the cable of the anchor all rattling down the deck. But the eye of Thera Gavarug sees something. Yeah, this was cool. The dragon's got a trick with that tail where it feigns like it's going to eat you, but then whip, the tail gets you, flips over his head. Mm -hmm. And if he were to just chop the tail as it was coming at him, our hero, mm -hmm. the thing would still be flying at him even though he cut it. So he's got to use the flat side of a sword to bat the end of the tail away. That's right. Which is a pretty impressive individual achievement. You know, maybe we could have built in some backstory for Leothric where his dad told him, you're never going to be a good baseball player or, you know, something <laughs> where a key thing individually came into play, but it's not even Leothric's achievement. No. The eye and the sword did it for him. It kind of yeah. took control of the sword for him and batted that away. Then Leothric and Wong, Bongarok, fought <laughs> sword and tooth, and the sword smote only as Sacknoth can, and the evil, faithful life of Wong, Bongarok, the dragon, went out through the wide wound. Wong, Bongarok. Finally, the last door, I think. Now this room is smaller and he can actually see the ceiling and there are bells 
on the ceiling. Leothric can hear the music changing, getting more dirge-like. And at the end of the corridor of the bells is another door. Okay, yeah, I thought the last one was... <laughs> it but no nope there's more this was more doors than i expected more doors yeah, yeah a lot more doors and it opens the open air in a wide court paved with marvel high over it shone the moon summoned there by the hand of gaznak it's pretty powerful now magical musicians play over the sleeping armored gaznak but gaznak's dreams poured out into a prog rock album cover <laughs> And into the abyss, there poured a white cascade of marble stairways and widened out below the terraces and balconies with fair white statues on them and descended again in a wide stairway and came to lower terraces in the dark where swart uncertain shapes went to and fro. Wow, man. Then Leothric steps into the room. Gasnak's eyes pop open, serial killer style. Yeah. He stands and faces Leothric. The musicians try to play some music you know, that's going to sedate him, You know, that's going to have power over Leothric, but guess what? The blade Sacknoth cuts it aside. He cut that music, cuts it. <laughs> now the musicians flee. The sword actually cuts the death spell. Yeah. Now Gasnak pulls out the second greatest sword ever and moves forward. He smiles, even though his own dreams have foretold his doom. He's got some special armor that is actually Sacknoth resistant. Resistant not invulnerable. Now, Gasnak and Leothric fight. Of course, Sacknoth is mightier, and he hacks away bits of Gasnak's armor until it seems Leothric is about to take off Gasnak's head. Oh, but he's got a trick up his sleeve. Gasnak grabs his own hair, and then he lifts his head up off of his body to avoid the blow. That's <laughs> so cool. He detaches his own head. He pulls it up, and the blade goes, <laughs> instead of cutting his neck, he does it. He pre-does it himself. <laughs> And the ringing fight went on, till Leothric's armor lay all round him on the floor, and the marble was splashed with his blood, and the sword of Gaznak was notched like a saw from meeting the blade of Sacknoth. Still, Gaznak stood unwounded and smiling still. At last, Leothric looked at the throat of Gaznak and aimed with Sacknoth, and again Gaznak lifted his head by the hair. But not at his throat flew Sacknoth. For Leothric struck instead at the lifted hand, and through the wrist of it went Sacknoth whirring as a scythe goes through the stem of a single flower. And bleeding, the severed hand fell to the floor, and at once blood spurted from the shoulders of Gaznak and dripped from the fallen head, and the tall pinnacles went down into the earth, and the wide fair terraces all rolled away, and the court was gone like the dew, and a wind came, and the colonnades drifted thence, and all the colossal halls of Gaznak fell, and the abysses closed up, suddenly as the mouth of a man who, having told a tale, will forever speak no more. So the whole fortress is gone. Everything's gone. Leothric is just now out in the marsh by himself. The only thing there is the body of an old man, wizened and evil and dead, whose head and hand are severed from his body. This old wizard was projecting all of that stuff. Just then, the sun rises and it's the promise of a new day. The birds sing, and Leothric goes on his way home. By noon, he's back in Alathurian with the head of Gaznak, and the people cheer. This is the tale of the vanquishing of the fortress unvanquishable, save for Sacknoth, and of its passing away, as it is told and believed by those who love the mystic days of old. Others have said, and vainly claim to prove, that a fever came to Alathurian and went away and that this same fever drove Leothric into the marshes by night and made him dream there and act violently with a sword. And others again say that there hath been no town of Alathurian and that Leothric never lived. 
peace to them. The gardener hath gathered up this autumn's leaves. Who shall see them again, or who what of them? And who shall say what hath befallen in the days of long ago? Just like the tin says, we're giving you a strange story. <laughs> There's no real conflict, except for getting the sword in the first place. Yeah. But, well, I guess there are conflicts, but they're all resolved by just showing people a sword and then in the end, finally just using that sword. I think this is something written truly just to amuse the author. Yeah. On us going over it again, I do see that there was some endurance required to beat the monster to get the sword. And then at the end, he did say, oh, I'm going to chop off the wrist while he's doing his. Yeah. So he did figure out how to beat the defense of Gaznak. And it was Gaznak after all, not not the fortress, because no. when we find him in the marshes, it's just this old wizard that's been doing this stuff. Although it does say, so now will he come back again on the next comet? Yeah, I don't know. He must have been defeated last time or he would be still sticking around. Or when he comes in on the comet, does he get to hang out for a few days or a month or a year and then has to jump back on the comet? Exactly. It's hard to know. So many questions. That ending is really interesting because it's a skeptical look at the story that he just told you. Yeah. It reminds me of, you know, when people are trying to puzzle out what the hell happened with those Salem witch trials. And then there's accounts where they say, well, they were all eating hallucinogenic mushrooms and that's why this happened. Mm -hmm. Or people come up with all these different theories about a historical event. And he points out that, that maybe that happened here, that he was just Don Quixote-like out there in the woods fighting nothing. Mm -hmm. You know, it was all just an imagining. And I wonder why Lord Dunsany does that. Is that to try and give the story some history or some some verisimilitude to make it feel like it's more of a real tale that's been told over time by criticizing it? Criticizing it and then turning around again and saying, but hey, you know, it's all the, the deep past, so who's to say? Who can really say what happened? Yeah. I can see why folks would say this is a fundamental sword and sorcery story. It's got the giant spider. It's got the, the Excalibur-like sword, mm -hmm. the special weapon. It's got a good monster. In the end of it, I, I think I get it too, because that does make it feel like it's more legendary and it's not just made up on the spot by some rich dude in a castle. <laughs> it's also got, if you stop worrying about genre, is this about somebody who's trying to get to the source of bad dreams? You know, is this really just about dreams? Because it has dreamlike quality to it. Oh, sure. When, when you're in your dreams, you often feel like even both an observer and the main character. So external forces are pushing you around and you don't have control. Mm. And the logic of this was dreamlike in parts. A chasm going down through the entire planet so that you can see the stars underneath. Things like that are mm, yeah. far more dreamlike than they are related to fantasy, I think. Yeah. Uh, we And we talked about Lord Dunsany on plenty of prior shows and gave bio. I don't know. We talked about him being a chess champion, I believe. Mm -hmm. This was another competency he had. He's a very good chess player. And I actually just read this article about Dunsany's chess variant of the game. Uh-huh. It's a way to play where one side, let me see if I can find it here. Black has all the normal pieces, all the normal places. White has 32 pawns arranged in four lines. 32? 32 pawns arranged in four oh, lines. Oh, wow. And this, I'll, I'll link out to this article about the variant, but it's a pretty brilliant variant and it scares the author. It says, you know, it's total <laughs> panic when I was playing black because it was just like waves and waves of these pawns coming in. But then when I flipped around to play white, it was horrific too because I had no idea how big I was. I couldn't get around. I didn't know what my strategy should be. Mm, yeah, uh, it's like a zombie it's, horde. It's Yeah, it said the conclusion of it is there is fear here and horror. <laughs> there is something of the endless sacrifice of 20th century warfare to it, but also something alien and depraved that must lurk, lurk deep in his fiction. <laughs> 
I played Dunsany's chess to get an inroad into his books, and now I'm not sure I want them in the room where I sleep. <laughs> That's how disturbed this guy was by that chess variant from Dunsany. So I want to play it now. I'm really no, interested yeah, in checking great. it out. Yeah. So folks should check that out. Anyway, this was a good uh, kickoff to Fantasy Month, I thought. Yeah, I agree. And I want to thank Greg Johnson for doing an amazing reading. Please go over to his Etsy website, buy some of his merchandise for this holiday season. Any of it would make a wonderful gift, not just for a loved one, but for oneself. I agree. I love Greg, and I'm glad to have him back on the show reading. He did a wonderful job, as always. And please, yeah, go to his Etsy store. I also want to thank our musical guest, Rags of Light. We're hearing some of that now. Once again, you can go over to the Bandcamp page. We'll link out in the show notes. Please support Rags of Light. This is good ambient horror and fantasy stuff I think you folks mm. really dig. So please check yeah. out the Bandcamp page. Pick something up there as well. And, you know, I want to thank some of our stakers. These are patrons who... I don't know, we're kind of called producers of the show because mm -hmm. they help us get things done. And I'd like to name some of them now. I'm going to start by thanking Crypto Cartographer. Alistair Brooks, thank you very much. I want to thank the twins. Uh, Jason McKittrick, Crypto Curium. Yeah, I love Jason stuff. He's the best. Angelina Brown, thank you. I want to thank Evan. And our good buddy, Eric Gordon. Thank you so much. These are the folks that are making these free shows happen for you. If you like what you're hearing, don't forget to go over to Patreon and subscribe to our show. Our show, of course, is called Strange Studies of Strange Stories. I'm Chad Pfeiffer. I'm Chris Lackey. Strange Studies of Strange Stories. Ah!